Good morning, everybody. The scripture I want to look at today is the first chapter of First Thessalonians. Short chapter, ten verses. We'll read all of them. First Thessalonians. There are two letters Paul wrote. This is the best church in the New Testament. Um, I don't know that I could speak for Paul that this was his favorite church, but they had the least correction necessary. They got the least rebuke, um, and they received the most applause and commendation. This was a good church. They're a pattern, a wonderful pattern. In verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. That's pretty much the Greek peninsula. Macedonia is in the north, Achaia is southern. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves, that is those who've heard of your conversion, they speak about, report about what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. This chapter, this description of this group of believers is a pattern, first of all, of conversion. What I want us to look at today are some of the marks, we can't exhaust it, this, but some of the marks of conversion. Conversion is another word the New Testament uses for being saved or being born again, being justified. There are a number of terms for the initial work of God in the life of of a sinner who comes to God, pleads for mercy, calls upon him for 
forgiveness and is renewed and made different. Convert can mean several things. Be turned into something else is one of the uses of the word convert. To be made into something else. And sometimes be made into something else for a different purpose. That it once served a certain purpose, now it serves a different purpose. It's been converted. God's in the business of converting. And Jesus said, we have to be converted, turned into something else. The marks of conversion that I want us to look at here, keep in mind the idea of change. You're changed into something else. <clears throat> now, the description here of these Thessalonians is something we need to examine ourselves by. This is almost a checklist. We don't have time to look at everything. But what these Thessalonians experienced in a radical turn to God, you and I must experience. There's a reason God records these things in the scripture. It's, it's a map. It is a road map for us. This is what God does in human hearts. This is how he works. Now, we don't necessarily find ourselves in the same setting as every case in scripture. We may not be coming out of the same species of sin, depth of darkness, we may not experience and feel the same emotions, but there are certain benchmarks here that need to be the case in our own lives. We need to be able to look at ourselves by the help of the Holy Spirit, and I don't mean to sound too cold, but check some boxes. Here's some of the boxes that we need to check in 9 verse 9 first part they themselves this is those who have heard about the Thessalonians and how they responded to Paul's preaching and his ministry they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you we'll just end there for a moment they opened their hearts and opened their arms, opened their minds to hear what previously to these people would have been unknown. Thessalonica, this is a good church. They weren't very far. They were just on the eastern shore of the Greek peninsula and over on the western was Corinth. They were all sort of in the same mess of wild-eyed living. The Thessalonians had a 
a whole bunch of idols that they served. And they had an annual feast, an annual celebration to one of the many gods, where apparently virtually the whole town stripped off all of their clothing and trooped up to the temple where there were all kinds of temple prostitutes. Believe me that surely these people would have some resistance to some little Jew showing up by the name of Paul who's poking his finger under their nose and telling them, that's wicked. You don't live like that. There's a God who's paying attention. And he doesn't like it. And he's clear to tell us that. Surely then, their resistance to hearing something different than they wanted to hear would have prompted them to say, no. But they opened their hearts. They listened. Most of the reasons, virtually all the reasons, we resist the gospel and we resist even our conscience, that still small voice. We don't want to hear A, what we know is true about us already. We don't want to hear from God what we've been doing. We avoid it. They had a different acceptance. They opened their minds and their hearts and they listened. That's step one. Lots of people somewhere, if we could look at each of us as being in the center of a number of circles, God begins to approach us through the Word of God, through our conscience, sometimes through the wreckage that comes from a life of sin. And He approaches us, and some people say yes or no, way out here from the center. And they choke off God's voice, they turn a deaf ear to it, and some do it so strongly, God never gets any further than that. They won't let Him. Others will listen until it gets a little bit too uncomfortable. And the cost of being a Christian, the demands that God puts on us to follow Him and to be called by His name begin to mount up and people think, you know, if I really get right with God, I'm going to have to quit this. I'm going to have to start that. I've got to... A lot of things that I'm not too sure. One of the things, the morning, the morning that I finally knelt by my bed and begged God to forgive me, one of the things that confronted me before I knelt by my bedside was, if you get right with God, if you repent, if you ask Jesus to save you and come into your heart, You can't go to the party tonight at Dave Walker's apartment. (laughs) Stupid. (laughs) 
But those things get brought up as God moves closer and closer with His requirements on us, His demands on us. There's a cost to becoming a Christian. There's, you can't estimate the gain, but there's a, go- there's a cost. We have to say yes. Further, in 6, the first part, after an acceptance, and this isn't necessarily chronological order that is written, but in the 6th verse, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. There is a new affection Now, we see social media all the time. We see these pathetic people who copy influencers. I sort of don't even know what an influencer is, but on the social media. So-and-so is an influencer. Okay. But we'll mimic them. Whoever we love, whoever we have affection for, we imitate them. And it's in many cases depending on what the object is, is pathetic. It's just truly pathetic. You get, women do this, you get haircuts to be like whoever. And you dress like whoever. And the mannerisms. And you, that the word here, by the way, of for imitate, the Greek word is mimic. You mimic someone. Who, who and what we love will pattern ourselves after. I don't know exactly what all different kinds of things and people these Thessalonians mimicked. But they had a different, they were converted. They were changed. They had a different object, person, to mimic Jesus. You became imitators of Jesus. That's what happens when we get right with God. When God transforms our heart, converts us, we imitate Jesus. And wherever we don't, The Holy Spirit's very faithful to tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, you need to knock that off. You make this adjustment. You quit that. You start this. You change there. Making us into, he says, notice the word, became. You became mimics of Jesus. They had a new affection, a new focus on someone else. This world is sad. Um, yes, a lot of times we can make fun of the world, but it's pathetic. It's pathetic. The worthless movements and opinions and objects and movements, I guess, we have that people will pattern themselves after. For what? We're all, every one of us, heading toward judgment 
will stand before Almighty God. He'll open the books. And all we worry about is whether Taylor Swift is dating Kelsey. It's, it's crazy. The whole world is crazy. Sin is moral insanity. Now, I like sports. There's nothing wrong with them. God uses sports as a very frequent illustration in the Bible. But right now, we live close to, you know, where the spotlight of the entire world, probably all of, you know, the universe. On the University of Colorado, prime. And that's all you see. Think about it. One day I'm going to stand before Almighty God who sees, knows, hears everything and has it recorded. And he'll open the books. What, what is going to make a difference in that day? What will be important in that day? Not the things that this world sees as important. None of them. So we'll spend our lives chasing after nothing. There's a new affection then is a mark of a conversion. Third, back in verse 9, they reported that the reception we had, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That's the word convert, plainly. It, it, it means to turn to, from. It's a double action. You turn away from the wrong and turn to the living and the true God. He's alive. He talks to us. He prompts us. He helps us. He directs us. He corrects us. He chastens us. He's alive. And we talk here about idols. And we think, we might think, well, we're sort of strangers to idols. Because we don't have little figurines. We don't have little shrines in our houses. We're not burning incense to some little wooden or stone carved image. We don't do that kind of stuff. Ours are more sophisticated. The idols in our society are more sophisticated. They're more abstract. Yes, some of them we can see, but a lot of them are of the heart. A lot of us, if you could see an awful lot of people, I would say the number one idol that this whole world, this whole society, we do have in our hearts, not physically, maybe not on the entryway little table where there's, you know, whatever stuff, flowers, I don't know, whatever. We have a little shrine there. 
And there's a little bit of incense that we burn. And it's in front of a picture that looks like us. We worship me. That's what our culture has become. Who's the most important? Me. You need to bend. And, and by the way, every one of you, at least over here to the right, you, you need to acquiesce to my rights. I don't care if I'm in the minority. I don't care how wacky I am. I'm, you give me an honor and celebrate and get out of the way from and diminish your own rights for my rights. That's, that's what our culture is today. And we exalt. So we do have idolatry. It's us. It's my way. It's my opinions. It's my plans. It's my feelings. It's my rights. And you better kowtow to them. Except there's a God in heaven that claims a right only to worship Him. So there's a different ambition. They serve God. It means that, yes, I have to go to work. We have to raise kids. We've got to pay the mortgage. You've got to get the car repaired. God understands all those things in life. But my ultimate ambition is to serve and please God. To, like Paul said, be ready in season and out of season. In other words, whenever there's an opportunity to talk to somebody about God, it may come up just like that. I'm ready. Because he's all that ultimately matters. And my ambition is to serve God. Please God. That's what he originally created us for that. Serve God. That's doing something. Whatever it may be that God puts in front of you to do. Different ambition. Ten. And to wait for his son from heaven. There's a different attention, a different focus of our attention. We are, this is the, it can be a quandary. We live in a world that we can see and measure and feel and weigh every day. We deal every single day with the physical, what we can see. Yet our eyesight is to be fixed on what, as Paul couldn't have said it any better, he said, we notice the apparent contradiction. We look at, and it's present tense, we are always fixing our eyes on that, which you can't see. We look at what can't be seen. Because he said, that which can be seen is temporal and passing away. But that which can't be seen, except with the eye of faith, is eternal. That's what matters. So in a sense, Christians are otherworldly. We're focused on eternity. We're focused on God's opinion of us. We're focused on judgment. 
We're focused on the next life. The worst thing we can do is to live for this life only. So everything we do in this seeable world ought to be intended for the next world. Serve God. Heaven's going to be full of people who nobody ever heard of. They never made a mark in this world. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal just yesterday. It was talking about the Astor family who were there 200 years. Came over in the late 1700s from I don't know, Ireland or someplace. But the whole article was on it. Well, it was a book review about a book on that entire family and how much of, um, especially in past centuries, you couldn't hardly take a step walking or a carriage ride which run, without running across a street, a park, a former home, a mansion, whatever, that was owned by the Astors. One of the early Astors, I think he was like the third or somebody, died on the Titanic. Uh, but they were fur traders. And if you know anything about the history out here, and the mountain men trappers rendezvous, John Jacob Astor was one of the prime fur people. In the, in the early, early 1800s, made $2 million then, those dollars on the fur trade. Well, that I don't know what that would be today. Just incredible wealth. But it's gone. They're gone. Their names now, even though they may still be on a park, a plaque, a building, a street name, nobody even knows who they are. But they were towering towering people in the society then. Immense power. They're gone. They're gone. Everybody's heard of them, mostly, then. Most of the people in heaven, nobody ever heard of, except God did. God knows them. And He fellowships with us, which is a mark of conversion. We know God. Finally, the latter part of verse 10. We wait from His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. That's judgment and hell. God has been so fair, so clear, so open, so transparent. There's nobody more transparent than God. And He tells us way in advance. And He just repeats it to death, telling us there's a day coming when we will give account for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good, whether there will be evil. End of Ecclesiastes. The whole duty of man is what? Fear God. Reverence Him. Keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For, the writer said, He will bring into judgment everything that we've done 
along with, he said, every secret thing that deep down of our heart he knows. There's a final mark here. There's a different assurance. One thing about conversion, it happens at some point in our lives and we remember it. There's no such thing as being unaware that you've been converted. It's impossible. I have to participate in it. I respond to God. I trust Him. I repent of my sins. And I quit them. There is a date. Now you may not remember the calendar date. You may not remember the day of the week. But however many years or even recent months, you can go back and you remember the event, the scene, when you gave your heart to God and sensed clearly His forgiveness. Peace floods our hearts, assurance, shame, guilt. God's frown is gone. And it changes to we cry out to Him that we love Him. We have a brand new relationship with Him. And He assures us. The Bible is a, is a book of assurance. God wants me to know. He wants me to know. You're okay. I'm pleased with you. God's pretty good at conveying to us what He thinks. And you can't shut Him up. He will tell you whether you want to hear it or not. I can shut men out. I can shut humans out. You can't shut God out. He'll wake you up in the night. He won't leave you alone. The assurance, that's, this is what I want to end with, the assurance here is a different assurance. Now it's not an assurance based on what I may know and what, I may, what religious rituals I may have gone through, but it's a personal relationship with God. It's an deep impression on my heart that it cannot be. I, it, it, it's hard to be shaken. I know, Paul said, whom I believed. I'm persuaded the truth. Here's, the, here's what I want to leave you with. Do, do you have in your mind a time when you know I was converted? God changed my heart. Again, you may not know the date or the time of the day or whatever, but I've talked to an awful lot of people through the years and say, when did you get saved? Tell me how God got a hold of you and you got saved. Well, my grandfather was a preacher. Okay. Well, I was always taken to church when I was a kid. And of course, you know, being forced to go, I kind of got sick of it. And Listen, by then, I don't mean to be, please understand me. I'm a wonderful human being. I don't sit there thinking evil thoughts about you, but I've already decided I know what the answer is. When you can't give a clear, I was there. It's like one old, old book. 
150 years ago, some preacher made this statement. He says, when I got saved, when God converted my heart, he said, I wouldn't have thanked an angel to come to tell me because God told me. And he said, how do I know? I was there. You know it. And no longer do we put our confidence. Let me just take a second here. I, please don't misunderstand me. To know scripture, to know the things of God, to go through catechism, vacation Bible school, Sunday school, baptism, be baptized, and in depending on different denominations, con, go through confirmation, first, you know, first communion, all kinds of these things. Those, I have no quarrel, obviously with those but don't make that your source of assurance my assurance has to come from God himself it none none other is sufficient I've got to know from God how do I know a couple things one his spirit, Paul said, bears witness with our spirit. Not to our spirit. With our spirit. What does he mean? My own heart, in other words, tells me, along with God assuring me of blue sky over my head and past guilt gone and sins forgiven, my own self-observation verifies the sense from God that my sins are forgiven because I see a change. Instant, immediate change. And further, subsequent changing. I'm different. I see I react differently. My, my loves of life, the things I'm interested in, change. I don't buck at going to church I don't have that a low priority. I read my Bible. I spend time daily with God in prayer and scripture reading. I'm looking at the whole world through different eyes. And that confirms the impression from the Lord. A work's been done in my heart. I can see it. I again am not opposed, obviously, to, I think, a lot of evangelical Christians, evangelical Protestants, small e. We, a lot of times, have thrown out ritual. Uh, we don't, you know, we don't like necessarily repeating the Apostles' Creed, the going through different rituals and so forth. And, you know, I've, I grew up in that. A little more formal, I think. But it's, it's so gone that we look at it as foreign. The problem can be, though, that we put our assurance in ritual, liturgy. Well, I took communion. Well, I was baptized. 
those things without a heart change don't matter. They're outward symbols of what ought to be the case in here. Without this being changed, the rest of it doesn't matter. What's my assurance? It has to be for God Himself. You're a child of mine. You're adopted into my family. Do you have that? Can you in your own heart, mind, and honesty know I know when I got right with God, my life did a 180. I was different from that day on. Yes, I may have disappointed God. I may have failed Him. But I took care of it. Kept going in the same direction. These are the marks, some of the marks, of no-soul Christianity. Certainty. Nothing matters anymore than being certain about where I'm at with God. We'll bow our heads in a moment here. After just a bit of silence, let the Holy Spirit talk to your heart. Listen to Him. Open. Don't resist. Like these Thessalonians. They listened. Even though it was crossed the grain, they listened. They received it. Father in heaven, thank you for the examples of scripture of people that we have that can shed light on experiences that we have on this side of heaven. I'm convinced, Lord, this morning that there are two groups of people sitting in this room, in this sanctuary, and watching online. Those that have the assurance that they've been born again, brought from death to life, not perfect in behavior, but a changed heart, a new creation in Christ. For those that have that assurance, may they never take for granted the work and the gift that's been done and that we live by your grace. But I do believe, Lord, there is also people in here that don't have that assurance. They don't have that looking over their shoulder knowing there was a time when they, like, the Paul, like Paul on the road to Damascus, encountered you. And everything from that time forth was different. Help them, because there's nothing better to know than to know that we are known by you and that we know you. So meet with that person, if they are here today or watching online, in the way that they need met, Lord. Speak to their hearts, and may they know that they've had that experience of, as Jesus says, being born again, being brought from death to life, being a new creation in Christ, and having that assurance walking forth that they've had that encounter with you, and they'll never be the same. So I know you're willing to and you're able to meet with each person here, Lord. I just pray that we are as faithful to you as you are to us and that we would just be mindful and allow you to do what only you can do in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.